right, so we're in this series, Grave Robber, and basically what we're looking at are these seven uh, miracles that John records in the book of John, um, and they each uh, kind of tell us a little bit more about Jesus, uh, and one of the things that we uh, desire to do as Christians, because the apostles tell us over and over again, is we desire to be imitators of Christ uh, and what he did. The reason why he came to this earth was to show us how to live. And so uh, each of these seven miracles that John chooses to uh, record, they all are done uh, with a purpose. They're done to show us a little bit about Jesus, okay? And so uh, that's why we're kind of in this. Today uh, we're going to be in John chapter 5. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, we would encourage you to turn to John chapter 5, and we're going to use uh, the first three verses uh, to serve as our uh, scene setter uh, for us this morning. And so uh, John, of course, is the fourth gospel in the New Testament, somewhere uh, closer to the back of the Bible than in the, in the front. Um, and so we're going to read these first three verses together. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Uh, now there is in sheep gates a pool, uh, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Uh, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. All right, so John, when he's recording this, he's recording uh, this next miracle happening right after uh, what he recorded at the end of chapter 4, which was uh, the uh, healing of the royal official son from a distance. All right, and so uh, it takes place almost right to back, and we see that Jesus has gone to Jerusalem. Uh, it appears that he's by himself. He doesn't have his disciples with him. Uh, and while he's down there, he's there for one of the feasts. All right, and and uh, we've talked about this a couple of times. There were three major feasts that the Jews were supposed to go to Jerusalem for. Uh, the first was the Passover. All right, and that's the one that we see Jesus oftentimes going to Jerusalem for. Uh, Luke, in his gospel, will talk about uh, Jesus when he's 12, going to Jerusalem. And the feast that he's going for is the feast of the Passover. Uh, we know of at least two, maybe three Passover feasts that Jesus will spend in Jerusalem uh, as uh, in his, during his ministry. Uh, so that, that's an option, is maybe he's there for a Passover. Uh, maybe he's there for the next feast, which is Pentecost. And Pentecost was literally 50 days. Penta is 50. All right, so 50 days after Passover. All right, and so maybe it's that feast. Uh, Passover, Pentecost will be a very important feast uh, that will happen in Acts chapter 2, uh, if you ever read that. Uh, and so there's that one, there's Passover, there's Pentecost, uh, and then there's booths or tabernacles. And what these guys, what these Jews would actually do is build these uh, tents, booths that they would live in for a week uh, during this festival. How much fun would that be? All right, some people would be like, yeah. Other people, like my wife, is like, ugh. All right, uh, that would be a fun, fun feast to go to. So basically with the Jews, if they lived within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem, uh, they were required by law to head to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate all three of these feasts. Uh, but for those outside of that 15-mile radius, they basically uh, chose which feast to go to. Uh, for those who are in Galilee, the majority of them chose to go to Passover. Uh, and so it's very possible, uh, most likely, that this feast that we're talking about is a Passover feast. Uh, and so if that's true, and that's what most scholars think, uh, then, then we don't really have a whole lot of information from John over the first year of Jesus' ministry. All right, the first Passover that he attends is back in chapter 2. 
All right, and Jesus is there, he's performing miracles, and he heads out at, at the beginning of chapter 4 back to Galilee, uh, and, and there he'll, he'll pass through Samaria, do some good things there, uh, before coming back into Ga- uh, Galilee, and there we saw uh, last week him healing the royal official son. And then we got another year that's gone by. All right, and, and that's pretty typical. For the most part, we don't know a lot about the early ministry of Jesus. Most of the other gospel writers will primarily focus on the last six months to a year of Jesus's earthly ministry. And so there's a large portion of his life that we really don't know a lot about. Now, we can probably assume what he's doing. Uh, same thing that he did in that last year. He's probably going around teaching people. He's probably going around performing miracles, uh, but because uh, he's very early in his ministry, there's probably not a lot of uh, popularity with this. Right? There might be some people like, oh yeah, it's Jesus, and, and they're getting a little excited, but they're not like the full-blown crowds that you're going to have after three years of him doing ministry in Galilee, as we see uh, as he enters into Jerusalem uh, on that last uh, Sunday before he's crucified. All right, so, so we don't really know a lot about what's going on here. All right, but we do know that Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's gone to this pool uh, that's a very popular pool amongst the poor of the city. All right, we're, we're in the northern portion of Jerusalem uh, at this pool called Bethesda. Uh, your Bibles might say Bethsaida. That's actually how I remember it growing up. Uh, but it's just a translation little doohickey thingy uh, that you don't have to worry about. They're the same place, okay? Uh, and so uh, they, this is where they're at. And, and it's the poor part of the city, and lots of people are coming to this pool because they have an ancient folklore. All right, this pool, uh, it's actually a double pool, all right, and it had... From one end to the other was about 317 feet, all right? So that's a pretty big pool, the size of a football field, all right? And, and everyone would come to this pool because it was fed by an underground spring. And every once in a while, the spring would allow some gases to uh, exit, and it would cause the surface of this pool to burble. And so it had gotten to the point where uh, the people in Jerusalem had decided that every time it bubbles, uh, that means that the, Lord, the angel of the Lord has stirred the waters, and the first one into the pool gets to be healed by God. And, and they just thought this for some reason, and, and they believed it. And so there's, this pool would have been a very popular pool amongst those who were sick and lame and paralyzed, as we see here. Now, this does show us something about superstition, right? because it is superstition. There is no proof that this was actually a thing that God did. And sometimes even the people of God, we can be superstitious, but we shouldn't be. We, we shouldn't allow superstition to guide our lives. We should rather allow the word of God and the prompting of the Holy Spirit to be our guide in this world. Well, Jesus, he, he's going to visit uh, this pool. Uh, in verse 5, we see that one uh, who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and le- learned that he had been in this condition uh, for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. 
So uh, Jesus kind of uh, is surveying the crowd, I kind of picture, and he sees this guy that's just laying there. All right, he says, hey, and starts to ask questions. Who is this guy? What, what is he doing? And he learns that he's been there a long time, all right, and, and it's been 38 years. That's a long time. And we're told that he's been in this situation. We're not told why. You know, we don't know if it was an accident or a disease. We can probably assume it wasn't since birth because pretty much anytime someone is suffering something from birth in the Gospels, they'll let us know that this is the case. And so so he just sees this guy that's been in this situation. And he comes up to him and he asks a simple question. He says, do you want to get better? And the guy's answer is not yes, and it's not no. I mean, this guy, he, he expresses frustration, and you can feel it. I mean, as you read this, you can just feel the hopelessness that this guy has. I mean, he's been in this situation for 38 years. He he's, may have even come down to this pool every day for 38 years, hoping to be everyone else into this pool. And with him, he can't walk. You know, even if he saw the water stir first and he tried to get in there, there are so many other people who are blind and and deaf and and can't speak, and they are going to be able to get into that water before him because they can walk. And he can't. And you can just feel his frustration with it. Is how am I ever going to get better? There's no way I can do it. Everyone gets in before I do. And there's times in our lives where we can feel this hopelessness that this guy has. And the life that we're in, that we're stuck in the whatever place we're stuck in, and we've been there for so long that even when someone offers us hope, we just slap it out of their hands because we are so fixated on the frustration and the exasperation that we are facing ourselves. But Jesus, he's not there just to offer hope, but he's there to offer a cure. And he looks at the man and he says, get up, pick up your mat and go. And I can just imagine the sensation that's returning to this man's leg that he hasn't felt for many, many years, 38 years. And he gets up. And it's a beautiful scene. He's, he's picking up this mat, this mat that was probably not much more than a sleeping bag, that his family and friends had to carry him. And for 38 years, this mat had carried him around the city, and now he was going to pick that mat up and carry it. It's a beautiful scene. But there's a problem with the scene. And at the second half of verse 9, we see what the problem is. It says that that day on which this took place was, Sabbath. And in verse 10, and so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mats. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And so they asked him, who was this fellow who told you to pick up and walk? And the man who had been healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And the Sabbath is the problem here. Right? The Sabbath was a big do- deal to the Jews. Like They had gotten to the point where they said, there's no way you're allowed to work in any way, shape, or form on the Sabbath. And so it's very important uh, to understand this idea because we really don't get it sometimes. 
All right, Bernie did a great job of bringing up the blue laws, all right? And that was a way for us to try legislating this day of rest, all right? But, but we've gotten rid of those. And a lot of times we don't, as human beings, get rest. We go from one thing to the next to the next. And God, uh, he rested from his creation and made the Sabbath day holy, and he commanded us to rest as well, all right? And, 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 he, and this is what the Jews were dealing with, because they had gotten to a point personally as a society where they were not resting. All right, and there's two guys that spoke out against this. One guy was named Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, he was a, he was a, a, a high official was this guy. <laughs> uh, he, he was a high official uh, in, in the Persian court, and he was sent back to Jerusalem, and it was after the exile, and he saw everything that the Jews were doing there that was against what God had commanded him uh, them. And so, especially one of the things that they were doing was breaking the Sabbath day. They were working on it. They were selling all kinds of stuff. And so, Nehemiah posted guards and said to the guards, you watch after people, and you tell me if they are breaking the Sabbath. So he's, he's having guys work to make sure that other people aren't working. All right, we've got to keep that in mind. And then there was Jeremiah, and Jeremiah said this, this is what the Lord says, be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day, or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring a load out of your houses, or do any work on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy, as I have commanded your ancestors. And so with these two guys in mind, as the rabbis were formalizing what was the right way to live, and what was the wrong way to live, according to the law of Moses, they took these guys' ideas, and they wrote a bunch of a list of what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And this list consisted of 39 different things. They included things like sowing your field, or plowing, or reaping, or grinding, or sifting, or sewing two stitches. You could sew one stitch, but you cannot sew two stitches. Or lighting a fire. Imagine it's the cold of winter. You're not allowed to light a fire on the Sabbath. Or you're not allowed to put out a fire. So imagine your fields catching on fire on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do anything with it. All right, and they would, they would, you're not allowed to pull down. You can lift up. You're not allowed to pull down. All right, and, and you cannot use a hammer. And the list goes on. And then they, then they had to argue over what it meant to plow or what it meant to sift. So that later on in the Gospels, we read about the disciples walking through the fields and, and picking grain on the Sabbath and rubbing in their hands so that they could eat the kernel. And the Jewish leaders would come by and say, you're not allowed to do that. That's sifting. That's grinding. You're not allowed to do that. And they would go to these extremes to where if you spat on the ground on the Sabbath day, you were watering the ground. And that was against the law of Moses. And they went to extremes with this. And the streams that they went to made them miss something very important. Their desire to keep their religious practice sacred caused them to miss the glory of God in this story. Now we, they're looking at this and they're saying, why are you doing this? This man He's not been able to walk for 38 years. And rather than saying, hallelujah, praise God, they were saying, no, you're not allowed to do that. And even when they ask him, why are you doing this? He says, the guy that made me able to walk, he told me to pick it up. And their response is, well, who is the guy that told you to pick up your mat? 
They skip right over the miracle. They don't even talk about how he couldn't walk and now he can. And the problem is, is, is we can do this ourselves. We can be like these religious leaders. For some of us, we've grown up in the church. And we know the unwritten rules that everyone knows if they're a part of the church. But what happens if someone comes in that doesn't know? That's not a Christian. That's a sinner. How do we interact with those people? Because we can very much look at them and say, no, 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 no. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to cuss in church. You're not allowed to dress that way in church. You're not allowed to to do whatever it is you're doing. And we skip over the entire fact that they're in church. Listening about Jesus and the mercy and grace that he has given them. And we get so focused on who we are and our unwritten expectations that we try to put on a show here on church without going outside of the church in reverence of God. See, I think being reverent to God is important. We need to understand that. But if sinners are in the church, they're sinners. They're not Christians. And it's totally okay for them to be here because they need to hear this message just as much as we need to hear the message. And if they act like sinners, who cares? They should not be expected to act like saints when we don't even live like saints outside of these four walls. We cannot be like the religious leaders skipping over the glory moments, the moments where we should be praising God because we are so stuck on the rules that we have made. And that is what's happening here. They're so focused on, you're not allowed to carry your mats. And they skim over the whole fact that this guy couldn't walk for 38 years. Well, this guy doesn't know it was Jesus. That kind of tells us that it's early on in Jesus' ministry. His popularity isn't to the point where everyone knows who Jesus is. Uh, And so in verse 14, Jesus is going to come to him and say, uh, find him in the temple. Okay, so they've gone from the pool of Bethesda and now are in the temple. And Jesus says to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And this is where we have to find balance. And what I just said earlier about not expecting sinners to act like saints. The goal of loving them, of showing them mercy and compassion, is to get them to a place where they're baptized into Christ, where they have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then, yes, they need to stop sinning. John, throughout his gospel, brings us back to this point every time when he's talking to people and talking about their lifestyle choices and talking about what that we should do when he gets to the woman who is caught in the act of adultery and he tells them, don't, first one to, without sin to throw the first stone. What does he do after everyone's left? He looks at her and says, go and stop sinning. The life that we have in Christ, this new beginning, this new thing, it is for the purpose of not doing whatever we want to do again. 
is for the purpose of serving God and living the life that He wants us to live. And so when sinners come to know Christ, they are expected then to stop sinning. But not necessarily before that. And as Christians, we need to know this. We need to act like this outside of church. What happens Monday through Saturday is important to our salvation. We are commanded to stop sinning. We have been bought with a price. We have been redeemed and set free, not so that we can go on living in sin, but so that we can be slaves to righteousness instead. And this is what Jesus is trying to get at this guy. Well, in verse uh, 15, the guy uh, is going to run back to the Jewish leaders uh, and tell them that it was Jesus who had made him well. In verse 16, we see that Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus says, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Uh, For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Uh, In John, uh, we said this a couple weeks ago, in John, uh, the miracles are associated oftentimes with long dialogues. And so the rest of this chapter will be a long dialogue of Jesus with the Jewish leaders telling them the purpose for why he did this miracle and when he did it. But it's summed up in verse 17. After the man figures out it was Jesus, the religious leaders go to Jesus and say, why are you doing this? And Jesus sums it up saying, God is always at work. And I, too, must be at his work. It's a great idea. Because even though God did rest from creation on the seventh day, his works of compassion, his works of mercy, his works of love have never stopped. They have never ceased. And Jesus says these are the things that matter the most. These are the things that I need to continue you to do even if it is on the sabbath and what we see is that in this story the religious leaders they never once express joy for this man they never once show this man compassion knowing that he's been like this for many many years they never once show mercy on this man but rather judgment And they were so focused on that judgment that they missed the glory that God was trying to show. And this is how it matters to us. We need to be people that are reflecting Jesus in all things. And if Jesus was willing to show compassion and mercy and to break rules that were made by man, then we need to be willing to do that. When kids are running around the church building and we say to them, no, you're not allowed to do that. We need to show compassion and mercy and teach them what it means. When we have issues with our spouse and we're fighting with them day and night, we need to have compassion with them and mercy with them and love. When we're dealing with our coworkers and, and the people that work for us, maybe, and they're just difficult, and you just want to punch them in the face, we need to show compassion and mercy and love. 
when we're dealing with people that don't know Jesus, we need to show compassion over them, not judgment over what they're doing that's wrong. That's missing the point of what Jesus came here for. We need to be people that are loving people everywhere we go. And that's what Jesus did here. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are amazed at Jesus and his compassion for people who probably really didn't even deserve it. And his patience with those who weren't understanding the message. And we look at our own lives, Lord, and I just pray that when we are challenged with the preconceived ideas of what we think it means to follow you, by the way that other people are living, that we will not focused on our own rules, but that we'll focus on what love is and how we can show compassion and how we can bring people closer to you rather than driving them away. Help us, Father, to do your good works no matter what day it is, no matter what time it is, no matter what year it is. I just pray, Father, that in our lives we can be focused on you and what you have us to do. I ask these things in your name. Amen.